Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Everybody, welcome to the next session in indie game business. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Alan Wilson, the CEO of Tripwire Interactive. And as it happens to be, Tripwire is also one of our sponsors for the event. So, a huge thank you to Tripwire uh, and for supporting these events. And I'm very excited to chat with you today, Alan, to just find out more about Tripwire, what you guys have been up to. And also, I mean, if you happen to have any great stories from your story time in the game <laughs> industry, feel free to share those as well. Um, so first, let's start out. Why don't you just uh, do an introduction, Alan, and uh, let us know who you are. Okay, let's do the, <clears throat> the quick version of the intro. Um, been in the games industry about 20 years, started... Um, you know, as, as Tripwire did as, as a modder, uh, co-founded Tripwire nearly 18 years ago. Um, it's the only job I've ever had in the games industry. Uh, yep. Um, I've done pretty much every bit of the job that needs doing from, apart from any actual creative work, I've done PR, <laughs> marketing, funding, accounting, uh, selling to Walmart, Oh, wow. um, the stuff I enjoy is writing and design. Um, don't get too much of that these days. But yeah, all those other things life. take take up that time. It's almost like you're a one man game studio. Well, happily, I mean that's that's one of the the good things for Tripwire is you know it's never been a one man band. Um, you know we you know, we started as a team of four, and you know it's been a team effort all the way through. <clears throat> Thank you, Alan. So let's just start by delving into a bit of your company history, because I find it super mm -hmm. fascinating. Specifically, I've been in the industry for a very long time, too. And so it's just really interesting to hear these or origin stories and how things have developed and changed, of course, over 20 years, which is a long time in the game industry. So you started out, um, some people already know, but you started out as a modder. Can you kind of give us... Um, some details on what you were modding yep. for and all of that. <clears throat> sure. I mean, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, I mean, it goes way back into the, oof, before 2000. And there may be some people who on this stream, if they're young enough, may not even know what the Don't term even... modding means. <laughs> I was going to say, there's probably people on this stream who weren't even born when we started, which is a fairly terrifying concept in itself. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it it kicked off the, the whole modding scene. I think kicked off in the late nineties, somewhere around there. Um, you know, there were people who were trying to break into the games industry, uh, you know, and there was people like myself who were just who had a real job, 
um, and we're just messing about. Um, you know, I remember I, I kind of got involved, I think, somewhere off the back of the first Call of Duty, going, oh, this is quite cool, but it could be better. And, you know, people came together um, using different tool sets. You know, Unreal became very popular. But, I mean, the first mod I was working on, I, th- oh, God, what we, I can't remember. We started on Call of Duty. I, th- I think we might have gone through Soldier of Fortune at some point, briefly. Mm. I can't even remember what tech we tried to use. When that collapsed, um, I was looking around for another mod to work with um, and ended up on the Red Orchestra mod. Um, there was, you know, of the four of us who ended up setting up the company, um, Bill was already there. I think he'd been on for about a year. Um, John joined, if, I, if memory serves, early 2003. I joined a month or so later. And basically, we were creating a, a you know a total conversion mod for um, for God for the original Unreal Tournament hmm. 2K um, became 2K3, 2K4. Um, it was a, it was a total conversion mod, which started out as just being you know this is for fun and for for those who want to try and start building a career in the games industry. And for people like myself, it was much more. It was you know hey, I've seen these games, we can do better. Um, and somewhere, I think it's not long after I joined the, was it the NVIDIA $1 million Make Something Unreal contest got announced, co-sponsored by NVIDIA and Atari uh, and obviously Epic. Um, and we took a look at it and thought, we're, we're just a bunch of amateurs. This is, uh, but, uh, no, we, we didn't enter phase one because we thought, uh, you know, our stuff is... <laughs> Our stuff looks so amateur and so bad. But we didn't enter phase one. Then we saw all the entries for phase one and went, oh, wow, some of this stuff is even worse than our. It's really bad. Hey, let's, you know, we entered from phase two, we entered phase two, phase three, phase four. We won phase two, phase three, phase four. Wow. Whole thing. Got a lot of publicity off it. Didn't win a million dollars. The one million dollar prize basically was if you take the retail value of everything that they could throw in plus a few kitchen sinks and the total value of the uh engine license because that was the that was really the big prize yeah engine license because uh, at the time from memory that was about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was a yeah. lot of money a lot of money yeah back then it's still a decent chunk of change now <laughs> um i don't mind the licensing on that stuff's changed completely yeah, we end up winning it, um, and back in 2004, Jan 2005, you know, sort of four of us sort of were talking about, well, we've won this. What do we do now? Um, you know, uh, we just kind of went, uh, yeah, well, I guess we have to start the company. We have to try and do something commercial with this. Um, you know, three of the guys were full time in, in on it. Uh, I was still trying to run my own business in London and um, mm. and do it and do the do the mod stuff part time uh, and then the game company part time so it all got a little chaotic um do that i mean yeah go ahead when did they suck you in full time <laughs> <laughs> it was <clears throat> i mean we famously did the um you know the piece where we we've got a company we've got a bit of cash not very much it's not going to last very long Right, and we're hawking around for a publishing deal. 
Um, we can talk about that fun and games. Um, but realized that you know, the, the publishing deals that were around 20 years ago were horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not staggeringly developer-friendly. And, yeah, I mean, we we were sort of just going, oh, we can't do these things. I mean, we'd, we'd, we won't have a what, – what do we have left at the end of it? Um, and I think, from again, if memory serves right, John one day – I think Valve had made a few statements about Steam because Steam was in its infancy. Oh, that's right, yeah. John just picked up the picked up the phone one day, called Valve headquarters in the days when you could just call. Yeah, you know, there was a there was a you could just call Valve. Yeah, and you got their um, you know in, internal address books. It was only about forty people or something. I think he I've forgotten. I think he ended up speaking to Doug, Doug Lombardi or someone uh, oh, or wow. Jason Holtman, just because they just picked up the phone in those days um, and doing the hey look you know you mentioned you might be interested in. Uh, you know, third-party material for Steam. Um, you know, don't suppose you've ever heard of us, but and I went, oh yeah, we've yeah, we had a. I think we had the the contract signed two weeks later. Oh wow, it was, cra- it was crazy. And then it was a question of getting the game out the door, which we did in March two thousand six. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was still in London um, and still you know, trying to you know, hold down a permanent job. Um, uh, and then as the first Red Orchestra became successful, for me personally, it became a question, and for the family, it became a question of, oh, yeah, we'd kind of expected this was a high probability. This was, we were just throwing money down the toilet, but it'd be fun right. for you. And wait, now this is actually making money and it's potentially successful. And oh, heck. Um, and we got into all the discussions and we ended up dropping my job in London and moving out here in 2007. Oh wow! Okay, Been so the here whole f- family moved out. The whole family moved out. Yeah, been here fifteen years. Um, in the down here in the deep south, and yeah, it's been it's been an experience. Yeah, that I can imagine. And I was always because I'm from Atlanta originally. So yeah, when I saw that you guys were had your offices there, I wondered because you know Atlanta wasn't necessarily synonymous with a huge game <laughs> development hub. They've yep. got more stuff going on there now. And of course they have the film and TV stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, did Was Atlanta the choice just because people already live there and they're like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to move. There's two, there's two answers to that. One is the political answer, which is, no, we saw that Atlanta, you know, the, um, oh. you know, the, the, the state legislature and so on was really getting behind uh, technology and entertainment, video game and uh, movie and TV tax credits. Great mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And lots of, Unfortunately, the, the truth is that there was four of us scattered around the world. I was in London, and you, putting a startup that has no money in London was the would, would have been a you know suicidal idea. London's way too expensive. Yeah. Um, Ingmar, who was one of the co-founders, he was in Amsterdam. wasn't much, you know, that wasn't much better. Bill was in Baltimore from memory, and he just went, "No, please, no." Um, and John was here in Roswell, Georgia. Okay. Went, it's cheap. I can get office space cheap. Mm-hmm. Weather's decent. We all went okay. Sounds like a night. Sounds like a plan. Um, and unfortunately, it was it, it was that simple a decision. As you say, it's, it it hasn't been a huge games industry hub, but it's grown it's grown steadily. I, th- I think when we started here, there was ten or fifteen companies in in the in the sector. Yeah. Now I forgot what the numbers are, but there's 
know, hundreds of video game companies here now, mostly, mostly small, a few bigger ones like ourselves. Yeah, and like you said, with the TV stuff, I know that Nickelodeon had a huge, huge game. In fact, that's where your COO hailed from when I yep. talked with Adult. her last. Yeah, yeah, Adult Swim. Yep. So you've got your company started, you're making money, you're like, okay, what are we going to do next? How <laughs> did you decide to fit what the next project would be? Um, you know, because you did, I think you did a sequel to Red Orchestra, correct? Yeah, the, yeah, the original plan was Red Orchestra, and one of the keys that came out of us as, uh, you know, having been a mod team was to support you know, that, that first game. And we learned a lot off, uh, off Valve in those very early days um, about um, supporting the title. We also did, um, you know, a lot of work really looking for, you know, for what became described as UGC, user-generated content, mm-hmm. um, and ended up releasing mods to Red Orchestra, which, mm. you know, on Steam. I think we're still still very few companies that's actually released helped people release mods to their game on steam i you know, we kind of scratch our heads why don't more people do that yeah it's a whole other debate um and while we were doing that and learning yeah uh the painful lessons of when do you, when does that stop being productive when does that when does that when does that become a money pit yeah um we were we'd already started into the sequel Red Orchestra Two. I mean, let's, let's be blunt. The first game was take the mod, take the original mod, uh, clean up, make it com- you know make it good enough to be commercial and get it out the door because right. we had no money, uh, virtually no money. Uh, you know, we were scraping. We 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 were using every every trick in the book to stretch money for you know and find money for that first game. And credit cards. Uh, credit cards, loan, friends and family, um, friends, family, and fools. Um, <laughs> yeah. Second mortgages. Yeah, I, t- I, I tapped the house for money. <laughs> yeah. uh, John tapped his family for money. I tapped friends for money. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and, and you just pushed it as far as you could. And um, and the, the remarkable fact that people actually trust you enough to do it that's a whole other story now, did that give you more confidence though that people were like sure heck yeah here's ten thousand dollars or here's my retirement savings now did to be honest still confidence <laughs> no it not for me personally i mean I, you can ask the others how they felt about it, it that didn't inst- that, that's just another worry for me uh it's you know uh it's you know i i've got my family as in my wife agreeing to put some of our money in, you know, this is retirement or not. This is, mm-hmm. you know, John reading his, you know, his mother-in-law's retirement funds and things like this is that comes with a responsibility. There are those I've talked about this in the past. There are those for whom, for whom those things don't matter. Um, that wouldn't be the four of us. That would not be tripwire if other, you know, if people didn't matter. Right, um, and you could just go, yeah, great, fine, thank you, I'll take that. Yeah, we no, it matters that we do right by those people. Uh, so that was, yeah, that, that that's just a, another layer of of stress. I mean, let's be fair, Red Orchestra, first game, we paid off all our debts day one of sales. Uh, oh, that's that great. Was, that was a wow, holy shit moment. Yeah, because you know, we we had there was, there was nothing on Steam. We had no there was no benchmark. Uh, you know. We didn't know if we were going to sell 10 copies, 20 copies, 20,000. Right. Just didn't know. Um, no one knew. Um, so that was, I mean, that was nice vindication. But back to your question, I mean, 
we were looking at using the money from that was, we made from RO1 to build out RO2, which was intended to be, you know, this is what we would have done the first time if we'd had the money uh, and expanding our skills and stretching ourselves. Uh, were you able to start hiring people to come help you guys with this too? Yes, to some extent. Sequel? I think, I, I think, I, I can't remember the numbers because I mean, we were originally, I think by the time we launched Red Orchestra 1, we had a total of seven, seven people on salary. Oh, wow. Um, I think. Uh, but yeah, we we then took a few more people on. But I think I'm pretty sure we were still only at, when we were starting on the build of RO2, we were still only at about 12 or 15 employees. So a very small but scrappy studio then. Yeah, it was a very small studio. A lot of it was done with um, yeah uh, people who'd been on the some people on, who'd been on the mod team with us who were contracting. Okay. Um, yeah, and arrangements like that. But we were. Uh, we were also then looking at, you know, without going to publishers and um, and and digging that, you know, digging back into that hole. Mm-hmm. How do you fund? Um, how do you fund future future titles? And we did go around the uh, funding community in Atlanta, around angel networks and VCs, and frankly failed miserably. Is it um, because? Why do you think that was? <laughs> mm, I, I can think of a number of answers. One is that. Frankly, we had very limited idea of how to pitch ourselves, mm. um, and yeah, you know, we had even less idea of where to go to pitch ourselves, because we were pitching, you know, pitching to Atlanta VCs. You know, a number of them were going, "Oh, this is really cool. Yeah, that's great." When you find a when, when you find a lead investor, come back to us. You know, you realize, ah, that means you like the numbers, but you don't even begin to understand what we're doing. So when you find when we find someone who understands what we're doing and thinks we're a good idea, then you'd like to play too. Yeah, okay, great. And yeah, you know, it drove it drove home the message that while a lot of the funding community around Atlanta wanted to play in technology, they didn't have the expertise. And you know, uh, this is there's a whole side piece about siege and stuff that we've done over the years. Sure. To try and bridge that gap to some extent and it's it's a very hard gap to bridge it is and do you think that that has improved though because i think that there are definitely more vcs out there today some that do specialize in games so they do have some understanding of what it's like to make a game or to invest in a game project but i think there's probably still a fair amount that still really don't have that baseline understanding of how long it's going to take to get a return on the investment for one thing you know yeah i mean it's it is really hard um, there's, you know, I, I do a decent amount of work these days with other entrepreneurs who are starting up, um, not, not just in the game sector. I deliberately do a, a decent amount outside the, the video game sector. Um, but it's, it is very, very hard. There's very few who specialize in it. I mean, shifts that you have seen, there's now, you know, some of the big banks actually have specialist, you know, video games units, which they didn't have 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that makes a difference. But you have to remember, these are investment bankers. You know, they don't get out of bed for something less than about a hundred million. Right. Um, you know, so if you're looking for five hundred thousand to build out a prototype, you're, you're not even on the radar. Um, it's so that's changed. Um, there are there are definitely VCs around. There are definitely specialist bankers around, uh, and there's a few. Um, Boutique investment banks, which is the polite term for small specialist, um, who are worth talking to if you've got something investable. And that's a whole other discussion is, yeah. have you actually got something that's 
that is is investable. Um, hey, look, I've got an idea. I want you know I need five hundred thousand to to create a prototype to to punt around. Is not inv- that's not an investment anyone's going to take except yeah you know, maybe some random angel. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're they all have their. The, the yeah, we. I know thing, that's yeah. true. We could no, talk I mean, about that to, for a long time. The other thing I was super curious about is because, as you mentioned, you were kind of with Steam from the beginning, and that had a huge hand in helping your project gain visibility. Um, do you think that something like that would be possible today with um, Steam or some other digital platform that perhaps people are starting to become aware of? I mean, the the thing was that we got. A- on there early so uh discoverability was not an issue I mean, let's be honest there was i think we were the third non-valve property launched um, oh, wow. on steam um you know so if, if you take non-valve titles on steam i mean how many are, i don't even know how many there are today i think <laughs> I, th- I think they're they're banging out about what, seven thousand new games a year yeah something um, crazy you know the, the numbers are so different you know at the time you know we got publicity because we'd won the the unreal. You know, we'd won the make something unreal contest. We got, you know, further, you know, odd speculation for why why would Valve sign an Unreal Engine game when aren't they trying to sell Source in the game? Well, mm-hmm. first off, they don't try. And, and you know, they've got Day of Defeat. Why would they want a competing title on the platform? You know, clearly, you know, just discussion we'd had with Valve and it's like when we did Killing Floor and you know Killing Floor versus Left for Dead and again the, right. these are not mutually exclusive things you know if people like this type of game they'll probably buy more of that type of game you know and, and people there was a, a feeling which I mean which fine it was it, it gave us odd bits of publicity at the time mm-hmm. there was this feeling that you know but but surely you know is there room for and yes there is I mean you look at <clears throat> Look at Steam today. I mean, there's oh, absolutely thousands. I mean, you know, how many times over the last twenty years have we heard the uh, the refrain? Oh, but PC gaming is dying <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I mean, I hear it every couple of years. You just, yeah. uh, I mean, the first couple of times you go really, uh, and having having heard it for the last twenty years, I just roll my eyes now and go, no, it's not. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's yeah. changing. Um, I mean, you know, the the barriers to entry that used to exist. <clears throat> don't exist anymore, but leads to totally other problems like you know the the one that you know that that bedevils you know every startup, which is discoverability. How do you how do you get heard? How do you get your game noticed when you know you can release it on Steam? But what, what do they charge now? One hundred and twenty bucks an app? I can't remember. Yeah, Whatever something like that. Two hundred. And I think that's okay. probably the number one issue facing indie developers today is they can have the coolest game, but if they can't get um, eyes on it or have people know that it's there, it's a huge area where I think people developers are still trying to figure out how to crack that code sometimes. Yeah, you know? it's it, it's one that yeah you know, we've talked about over the years, and it's you know people say oh it's changed, and yeah, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it hasn't. Re- the, the, the big problem has always been I've got. You know, I've got an idea. How do I get my idea from from there to concept yeah. to prototype to finished? You know, there's all of that travel, you know, which requires you know funding in some shape or form. I mean, it may well be yeah. you know 
Basement and this might be a good time to kind of lead yep. into the publishing division. So you guys <laughs> yep. were a successful developer. You did um, the Red Orchestra, the Killing Floor, and of course, my personal favorite, Maneater. Um, <laughs> we spent a lot of time playing that in the pandemic lockdown because it was just a, a lot of fun and a great yep. way to just kind of <laughs> get the t- stress and tension out. Um, <laughs> well, churning around as a sort of th- uh, uh, as a sort of 10, 10 meter giant monster chewing boats yeah yeah it felt great and it was very family friendly like it, a suitable for all ages so <laughs> yeah. but tell us a little bit about um so obviously you're very pro developer let's help developers there's issues that they're facing so you started a publishing division could you talk a bit about what led you to take take mm-hmm. on that as well we've actually been around publishing a couple of times um people tend to forget that we went around because we'd had the the experiences with publishers, you know, in the very early days, and just sat back and gone, why would we do those things? Um, <clears throat> and we boots, you know, we bootstrapped, which I recommend, but it's very it, it's very hard. Um, it's you know, it yeah, that's good. We'll come back to that. The by with the time we came up to Killing Floor in two thousand nine. Yeah, we were we were self-publishing on Steam, and with yeah, we we were retail was still a thing uh, for PC, uh, much more so than it is now. And yeah, we we ended up figuring out how does how does distribution work for how does physical distribution work. We worked with Navar um, up in Minnesota, um, and Muggins here got the in. The wonderful pleasure, not once but twice, of traveling to uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, to sell to uh, some Walmart. Walmart, some Walmart buyer who the previous week he'd been buying fence posts or something, and <laughs> you know next week he's going to be buying steaks. I don't know. And you know this week it's video games. Yeah, literally came in with sort of a printout this this thick, you know, on the old dot matrix printers, and you're going, I didn't know that stuff still existed, and he's leafing through looking at numbers, and you go. Anyway, uh, but having realized that we could self-publish, we did actually start doing some publishing for other indies. I mean, we did we did Xeno Clash at retail for them. Uh, mm. uh, there's this surreal moment stuck in my skull of me trying to explain Xeno Clash to a Walmart buyer. Um, in you know, And you've got 60 seconds. Uh, well, it's, you've got this hermaphrodite parent and you, you get weapons like the fish gun and I give up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and we did um, the ball and wolves and things like this on Steam, and you know, that that went reasonably well. But the learning lesson there for us was that to do publishing the way we wanted to do it. I was going to say to do publishing right. There's lots of ways to do publishing right, right. but to do it the way we wanted to do it would require more manpower than we had, more people than we had. We'd need to bulk out marketing, but also it's about how do we actually apply ourselves to this game. It's not just, oh, look, game, Steam, bang, thank you, done, next. Um, and, and so we backed off a bit. But one of the drivers then, and then came back, you know, we came back to it um, a few years later, is that thought that you know, those who've watched um, video game companies start up, you know that it, you have this horrible period where your, your numbers go, because you're spending money to build a game. It, it drops below the line and then bang hopefully you release the title and you get a big surge of 
big surge of cash and you bank a bunch of money. Um, and then the way we do things with the amount of support we put behind titles, you get more and more, you, you get lots of little kickers, but all the time you're playing the game of how far can we, we, we know what cash we've got. How far can we stretch that cash? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all we clang. It's up and down and it's not up and down every few weeks. It's potentially up and down every three years or something which means you're trying to span very large gaps with your cash reserves. And that, that gets wearing. One of the, so one of the prime drivers for us to do publishing um, was to start to, let's, let's find things that we can release mm. in those periods when we're not releasing our own title um, to just, you know, to, to basically smooth out those huge troughs. Um, so that was, that was the, if you like, the fiscal driver, the financial driver for it. The flip side of it, as you know, as we put the publishing division together, was really uh, as much as anything else about what sort of publisher do we want to be, and that was, you know, when you stop, we actually had to stop and think about that. You know, John put a lot, of, a lot of thought into that, um, and about there's lots of publishers who are just take game, do some marketing, put it know, out, yep. and, and see what sticks, and whereas. We're not. That's not us. We are developers first and foremost. We have always been developers. We want to work with developers. Uh, we want. To, we can't not be involved with the game. We're not going to be any good at that. Um, we're not just not going to be any good at going. Yeah, look, we think you're screwing it up, but whatever. Yeah, fine. Throw it out. <laughs> there. We're we're going to play the game, or we're going to play test the game, and we're going to get involved and go. Really not comfortable with that 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 mechanic there, or this weapon yeah. handling, or you know, this this UX, you know, because we realise that we want to help the developers make the best version of the game they can. Um, so, you know, we were we were looking at okay, what does that need to look like as a publisher? Um, how do we structure that? And it did require, you know, we have. 15, 20 people in the publishing division. I was now. going to say you have different sort of areas. I'm sure mm-hmm. you mentioned UX testing, um, community management, and all of that. And I think the biggest piece of it is getting that different type of feedback during the development process, so that the developer can really see and understand what how the game actually is yeah. being perceived and played by players. Because when I work with developers, that's the number one thing. They all think they have the most awesome game, and maybe they do. But as soon as you put it in the hands of other people and they watch people play these games, they're like, oh. You've got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher and more remember it's discord.gg slash indie game business
that's not how they're supposed to do that. Well, yeah. that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think is causing them to take to to utilize yeah. the game in that manner? So it's really eye opening for them. And yeah. and if the developer is very open minded, it's really fun to work with them to say, OK, well, how can we change it? Because it becomes a really engaging, interactive process where the developers thinking through the player's eyes yeah and then they're like okay this is what and then they come up with these hypotheses and then you're able to test it and it's just once you're in that groove it it really yeah. brings um yeah I, I think yeah I, I mean i think we hadn't really thought about it it was just natural to us because of the, the mod days you know in the in the mod environment you pitch something out there every few weeks and go hey look we've done this thing and we've added these vehicles like this and people go it's shite you go oh <laughs> well they didn't like that why not? And and you, and you iterate. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to talk about developer blindness. Um, you know exactly what you said. It's that thing that I know how, you know, get into this situation in the game, I know what I'm supposed to do. But someone coming to it fresh is going to go, is, is just going to go, oh, I could do that. Now, what happens if I do this? Yes. You know, and, and as a, as a game developer, you sit there going, why would you do that? Uh, I mean, what's the Gabe Newell quote, you know, in uh, from the very first uh, Half-Life? You know, you can't stick a big red button there and not expect players to press it. Why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, and the key point is the developers need to be listening. I mean, I tend to make the point that we're not going to tell you what to do with your game. It's your game. We are going to give you feedback and you may not want to hear all of it, but you are going to get it. And we are going to require you to respond to that feedback. The the response may well be, can be, doesn't fit with our conception of the game, bugger off. We're going to go, okay, we may have an argument about it and really go, look, this is why. Mm -hmm. But but it is your game. We're trying to help make the the best game, the best commercially successful game. Because at the end of the day, unless you have spare cash and are sort of doing indie because you don't need money and whatever any any other circumstances the harsh reality of the world is that if you don't make money you don't continue making games or not for yourself you don't end up working for ea and making my little pony meets bambi or something yeah and i think that's that's a different mindset for indie developers because most of the ones that i've worked with do it because they're very passionate about the game they want to make and actually making money is not necessarily the primary driver so when you talk with them about well how can we make this more commercially viable you really have to take them on that journey because in their mind they're trying it's a it's a piece of art right that they're making and sharing with the world and it's not of front of mind sometimes that well you have to be able to sustain the studio and the people that you're yeah. you're working with so that you can continue doing this well i think that, yeah I mean, the, I mean the simple question is you know <clears throat> is this is this a one-off thing for you are you going to go away after you've done this or do you want to do it again yeah if you want to do it again you've at least got to have pizza money you know? <laughs> yeah you, you, uh, i mean you can't you you have to you have to have enough funding hate that word, um, to keep going. You know, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, you've done it once. You've tr- um, it's not, I mean, it, we talk about sustainability and not, in term, not just in terms of you know, green sustainability and you know, saving the planet, but your company's got to be sustainable or you don't have a company. Um, it's, yeah. 
harsh, sad reality of the world, unless you can get yourself, uh, unless you live somewhere where you can get government funding because you're doing art and, you know, uh, and you're funded by the Arts Council in the UK or something. So, yeah. And so let's talk a bit about sort of tripwire and publishing. Sure. Um, because you have that modding DNA and you're very developer friendly, I know that there's sort of key areas when you're working with publishers that as a developer you want to be aware of mm -hmm. so that you understand how you're going to negotiate through these things. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the number one is IP ownership. So <laughs> if you're a developer, you know, when do you think it's okay to look at releasing your IP to your publisher? And when do you think you should hold on to it? People have heard me rant on this topic before. Rule one for me is don't give up your IP. It's what it's the thing you have of value. Now, that, you know, if we talk about it in this set, I mean, I had a rant about it a few weeks ago um, you know, because people were coming at it from, well, you'll just give up. It doesn't matter. You go, no, it matters because I hate to tell you that's the, if you create a successful game, that IP, that's, that's what you have a value. You personally are not a value. Uh, it's the IP and what you can do with it. So you've got to be very deliberate about what you're doing with that. You've got to be aware of that. Yes, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're at the point, let's be deeply practical here. If you are at the point where you cannot get any funding to finish the game, without giving up the IP, you've got a tough decision to make. I mean, we were faced with that decision back in 2005, and we went, no. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then we were sitting down going, uh, shit, what do we do now? And um, is that, I mean, back then, I'm sure most publishers didn't even want to talk to you unless you were willing to give up IP. Oh, so yeah. that really, no, I mean, it was, really it was, limits it, the conversation. It was, it, was a, it was a given. I mean, even after we signed the deal with, um, uh, with Valve to release on Steam, and they never mentioned. They never. They never asked about IP. Go. Um, um, oh, they're defunct now. I can. I can. I can talk about them. Um, the publisher we did the retail deal with. So went. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. We'll do this deal, and we'll do that. We'll do the retail publishing, and we'll take the IP. And we went. Excuse me. Why would we do that? We've already got a distribution deal. Yeah. Why would we give you the IP now? And they were going. Oh. Well. Because. You always do. No, we don't. We didn't, and yeah, uh, and we're very glad about it. I mean, it's. I, th I think the key point for me is that people, you need to be acutely aware that the IP, that that IP is the value in your mm -hmm. business. Um, yeah, I mean, my ideal world is you don't have to give up the IP, but there are times. There's, there's a number of circumstances where that doesn't necessarily... I mean, one, if there's nothing else, no other way of doing it, you, you, know, you have to decide, do I want to let this business collapse in a heap or do I give this, you know, do I sign this over in some shape or form? If you were there's... in a situation like that where you had to perhaps give the IP over, mm -hmm. but you still wanted to kind of keep the vision intact, what sort of things would you look at? How would you try to structure a deal like that? It's um, It's... I mean, at the end of the day, it's very hard because once, if you've sold the IP, it's going to come down to, um, you know, and you're going to need you're going to need lawyer assistance at this point, yeah. uh, because it's uh, you know, this is not something you, you you don't want to take on, you know, some big company who's you know, who's lawyered up to the nines, uh, who understands how to phrase all this gibberish, <laughs> um, and, and it is 
yeah, contracts contracts get complicated quickly. Um, you're going to be looking for, you know, uh, what controls do you still have? Because I mean, the the risk is that ultimately, I've sold the IP. It is not my game anymore. It is not my IP. It is not mine. It is theirs. And they can do whatever they want with it. They can that, do, put and, it on any platform. They can like, do sequels. They can put the just, IP in another game. Yeah, but what, you, what you've also got to look at is, um, you know, can they simply decide that you're the wrong developer and get another developer to do the work? Yeah. Um, you know, because um, you could well wind up with a contract where they go, yeah, we like you guys, but nah, bugger off. We're going to get someone in China to do it because they're cheaper. Yeah. Um, and we've decided what we uh, what we want this game to be. Uh, I mean, you've got to look at how is you know my studio's role guaranteed in this deal. How is my has my run has my money guaranteed? What money am I going to get? You know, if it gets into those sort of situations where um, you know the publisher who now owns this IP is now deciding that well, it's not going to be this little game. It's going to be this big game. And I'm, all this is going into it. What money does do you still get from it? Because at the end of the day, the last thing you need to be is in the situation that you've sold the IP to get, as, because it's the only way you're going to get the thing done. Mm -hmm. And now you're not even getting your thing done, and you're not getting any money from it. Yeah. You know, then then you've lost in all directions. So there's got to be a negotiation there about. Uh, and when you get to that stage, I, I would. I just hate recommending lawyers at all. Um, you're going to need to you know, you're, you're going to need someone who understands video games. Don't I've, I've seen it done where someone gets yeah. uh, their friend's father who happens to be a you know an estate tax lawyer or something right. to help. And no, don't do it. They don't know the ins and outs. Uh, they're either going to say things that just make them look and therefore you look really stupid, or they're just not going to understand what you know, as someone cuts them off at the knees. Yeah, and I so, think no, too with IP, there's interactive, there's non-interactive, and things like that. There's different ways to slice and dice it mm -hmm. as well, and someone needs to understand the ins and outs of all of that. Um, yeah, well. it, it it does get really complex. There is another circumstance which I just highlight, which is uh, I've met developers. I can I can think of one who I, I won't name. Um, probably wouldn't mind, but it's not a story. Who they enjoy creating. But they don't actually want to see the whole thing through. I, you know, they are uh, they're the the ultimate creative. They're not finishers. They're not. Okay. Uh, and at the end of the day, they can get so far, but they're losing interest. Now, there is an example where you may go. Uh, it's, I'm thinking of Alex Quick. Um, sorry, Alex. Um, <laughs> you know, because we've done a we've done. I mean, he was the one who uh, his his crew uh, did the first rounds of Maneater that got us excited. And, you know, Alex is one of these you know, mad creatives who will get this idea and get it so far. But dare I say, it may start to lose interest. He's not a complete, mm -hmm. he's not a finisher mm -hmm. um, or hasn't been in the past. He's tried very hard to be, I know. He did on depth. Um, I'm, I'm digging a hole for myself here. Alex, <laughs> is gonna go, Alex is going to be on the phone later going, what the fuck? What were you talking about? Yeah, you in that bastard. instance, though, wouldn't yep. he be able to license the IP to you guys? Would that be an angle? License, license, licensing. I, I mean, that's basically what you're doing, but um, you know, in a publishing deal, and um, a lot of the time, but it's that gets complicated quickly because um, it comes down to who wants 
what do you what, what do you want to do with it? And again, it's mm. you know, there's, there's a decision. And in, in that case, with something like Manic, Alex is going, I've got this as far as I as I can and as I want to take it. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys, you got you guys, you guys milk it for all it's worth, because that's not what I want to do. It's not that's not me. Yeah. Um, so there are there are circumstances like that where um, you think, no, I still want to have a level of creative control or not. You know, I want to hand. I've, I've got this as far as I want to take it. If someone else wants to take it on and run with it and send me checks for the next ten years, there's not a bad model there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if that's where your mindset is, um, and it does depend. Yeah, and you've got to be. But this is the point about you know IP. You've got to be intentional with it. You know, it's not oh just get yeah fine they want the IP. You've got to think about what what do I want to do about this? You know. Like us with Red Orchestra, we're going no, Kodak, fuck off. We, we, you know, this is ours. We've done well, it's been, we have now done the first Red Orchestra. We've done our, we did R O two. We did Rising Storm. We've done Rising Storm two. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we've worked with that property for best part of twenty. Well, for including the mod days over twenty years. Yeah. Um, because we enjoy it. It's a thing. You know, it's our baby, um, and we enjoy going back to it. Uh, if that's not you, then maybe that's a trigger that says there's a better way to handle this. You know, I want to be able to do enough of this and then move on to something entirely different. But with I, you know, so my because of our background, my my start point is always no IP should be mine. Exactly. And, <laughs> but that's not you know if we're being fair, that's not always the way it should work out. But the key is be very very intentional with it. You know, understand that that's that is a thing of value that IP. Mm-hmm. So be very intentional about. Okay, if I'm going to hand this off to the publisher, what am I getting for it? What am I getting now? Is that enough? You know, if they yeah. just give me a big stack of pa- big stack of cash now, okay, great, yeah. fine. And or, I think that leads me into the next question, which is, mm-hmm. what can you expect from a publishing? team right so developers may look at publishers as yep. primarily a source of funding but not good publishers not just giving you money and saying go make this so that what is, other things do they do it's it's a it's a again you need to be very intentional and this is also back to our point about developers is you need to understand the things that you don't know i was about to get into known unknowns and all that gibberish <laughs> um you need to be aware of what is it going to take? What's the totality of what it's going to take to get this game to market on all these platforms successfully, make it and all of that. And think, as a developer, how much of that do I want to do? And how much do I want somebody else to do? Which, you know, of all uh, of those pieces, because you'll find there's different styles of publishers. There are those, yeah, whose interest is in providing a bit of funding, some marketing, you know, a bit of help with first party, and mm. that's it. You know, that's that, that's their business model, which is a, you know, it's a business model that works. Wouldn't work for us. Um, you know, for us, it's it's much more about we want to work together with the developer. Um, and before everyone thinks that's an, an idyllic world, no, it can. You know, it, it leads to you butting heads because you know we're all going to have opinions about the game and the gameplay and you know and and platforms and timing and budgets and. There's plenty, plenty of stuff to argue about, but it's, you know, as a developer looking for a publisher, you kind of, again, it's about being intentional. You might want to talk around the industry about going, what are all the, th- what are actually, you know, 
if it's your first if it's your first time around you may just be having enough of a fight just working out how the hell do i finish building this game right never mind everything else that's got to go on around the localization the trcs from the first parties yeah building up your community any of that testing the game yeah you know all these all these little things um you know a b testing um end user testing alpha beta Mm -hmm. um do you go with beta programs? Do you go with early access? Do you all of that? Subscription um, services. What choices are you making there? Yeah. 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 How do you even get you know the attention of sort of, of the first parties like Sony and Microsoft? You know? mm-hmm. um, so there's all those questions, and really, well, the publisher you know, when you're talking to publishers, um, you know, they're digging digging into you to find out can this crew actually? I mean, is, is, does this game actually sound interesting in the first place is there is there a real game here can they execute on it can they one of the key questions for us is we, we see i hate to say it, we see it a lot of the time is does the crew actually understand what the fun is in the game right show us what's actually fun about it i mean you've got great concept great artwork but yeah what you know mm-hmm. but there's no gameplay yet <laughs> I don't know. Can you actually make a game? Right. At the end of the day, I mean, again, you could be making you, know, you, you could be making art, fine. But if you're trying to make a game, it's you know, I would think by Webster or Oxford English Dictionary that is entertainment. Is this thing entertaining? Is it going to keep people entertained? You know, the flip side. Well, of how that critical is... is it for people to have a demo when they come <laughs> to to ask you guys to help them? <laughs> In a perfect world, we would always want to see a demo because that is the acid test for us of, do you actually understand what the fun is in this game? Because uh, I don't care if it's gray box, you know, mm-hmm. what it looks like, you know, code, uh, we, we, we were playtesting something yesterday and you know, the UX is code or art and you're going, this, of course it looks horrible because it's code or art. Um, but how does it feel? How does it play? Do, do we... Can we see, do you understand what the key elements of your game are that are going to engage people? Have you got them in here? Can we find them? Um, and can you execute on it? You know, uh, those those things go kind of hand in hand, but people can execute on a, uh, on a game while still making a really dull game. Um, so it is really important to us to have a playable. I don't care whether you call it vertical slice, alpha, beta, demo whatever it whatever you want to call it something playable that will show us that you actually have whatever it looks like and the fact that it hasn't got all these pieces fine but is mm-hmm. the, have you have you actually understood what is the core entertainment of your game that's hugely important to us now that isn't always possible because quite often it takes a decent chunk of change just to get to that point Right, um, and we do it. Yeah, yes, we do engage with the developers uh, and look uh, and look at. Okay, you've got a great idea. You've got bits and pieces, and uh, yeah, we, I was going to say we get to risk, but come, I'll come back to that in a second. And you get to the point of going, can we provide you with funding to get to that point? You know, let's discuss. But it comes down to, I mean, ultimately the whole thing comes down to a risk risk reward equation for the publisher um, whether it's us or whatever style of publisher it is you're looking at we're going to put all this time and effort in 
what's the probability we're going to get that back and ideally make money on top of it? Thank you very much. And that's that, you know, that's the $64 million question. Is, you know, if we look at all those pieces, and, you, you know, and again, depends on the style of publishers. Some people are very simplistic about it. You have very simple models. Um, you know, we're looking, we're trying to look at, you know, and this is why, you know, if we're doing our due diligence with a, a developer, we will kind of have the drains up because, I mean, in, in an earlier world, we would, you know, come and spend time with you in wherever you are. Yeah. You know, we've been to Brazil and Ukraine before the Russians decided that they want, yeah, anyway, let's not even go there. Yeah. Uh, pun unintended. Uh, so that we, I mean, apart from the, the basics of, yeah, you said you had 20 developers, you know, uh, I see three and a cat. <laughs> you know, are you not being entirely straight with us? Uh, yeah. But also, just just to get to know people, because how are we going to work together? This is for for our style of publishing. It's going to be a partnership for a year, two years, three years. Um, you know, development just a, a, a development team that's been together for a while. That's hard enough. Yeah, I was going to ask you. When people have already released product, maybe with another company, and this is their first time starting out, do you find them to be better suited than sort of a first-time developer, or do they still have to go through the same struggles and you know all of those other pieces it, it before depends. they get funding? Yeah, it, uh, it depends entirely what their skill set is. Um, you know, if you've been, you know, if if you're uh, good example, the the uh, Sweet Bandits doing Deceiving. Um, you know, they came out of big studios, mm-hmm. um, aware enough to have to be concerned about the things they don't know. Um, they know their trade, they know their craft very well. Right. But they realized, and, and why it was kind of a match made in heaven for us is that they they realize that, that all these other pieces that they've seen, you know, as part of a three hundred man team at Ubisoft or whatever, they know there's a marketing division over there somewhere doing some stuff. And all these other things going on, mm-hmm. they're aware of them, um, but have never not done them. And they're thinking, how do we? Okay, and, and this is where we can help, um, you know, and we can work together. Uh, oh, questions coming. Yeah, we've got. So, if we want to move into the Q and A section, I, I, as usual, I've talked too much. No, it's been great. I think everyone's really been joining the conversation. <laughs> I just seen the, I just read this question. Mm-hmm. Oh, he just put it up. So let's, yeah, we'll get some Q&A. So if you want to take a yep. stab at this one, let me read it out just I, so we have it. Were there moments early in the company where you almost didn't make it? Critical scenarios or situations that you were able to recover from? And this comes from Alina. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is one, of the, one of the pros of, of bootstrapping, doing it all yourself, is... Ultimately, it's entirely your decision. No one's breathing down your neck um, and all the rest of it. The flip side of that is there's no one there supporting you. When the money runs out, you're toast. That's Mm -hmm. it. You're done. Um, There were a number of those. um, And we, I mean, in the the run-up to getting Red Orchestra out the door, um, the very first game, I mean, yeah, we were running around, we ended up doing all sorts of, legal but um but dodgy deals to, to stretch the money as far as we could and asking people we asked a bunch of people to help to share our contractors to share the risk with us it mm-hmm. worked out for everybody you know um, yeah. i mean 
it's I don't think it's a huge secret now. When we were in two thousand nine, releasing Killing Floor, the first Killing Floor, we were or in I think we were calling it. It was scheduled for release in May. I think we were at the back end of April, um, and the four of us. Uh, John, Bill, Dave, myself, were sort of sat in the room, you know, reviewing where we were and all the rest of it. And you know, Bill and Dave, as you know, as the artists, are going, look, it it just doesn't look good enough. Yeah, you know, we've we 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 need more time. You know, we need you know another another couple of months. You know, and I was you know, I was the one looking at the numbers. I'm going, guys, we've stretched everything to the limit. We have one payroll left. Yeah. When that payroll's gone, we can't make another one. There's, yeah. not, there's nothing left, you know. Uh, and when the bank, and we, if we try, the bank will realise and probably come and steal our computers. <laughs> oh, we, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it had, uh, and it went out. Um, you know, uh, did it look like ours? Some of it did, yes. Um, I mean, we hammered that game out in a short order, um, but the core there was that the gameplay. People, right. people could could forgive the, you know, the janky bits of graphics tucked away uh, because the gameplay was just stupid fun. Uh, so have we? Be, have, were we that close? Yes, we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was. Yeah, we we've we've been there since. There's been you know, times when there's an argument that says we pushed out RO two earlier than you know, earlier than we should have done, but we were at the point of going. If we don't push this out this side of Christmas, we need to bump. We go, we have to bump it into the new year. If the Christmas sales of Killing Floor aren't very kind to us, we won't make it. Yeah. Get, you know, as it turned out, Killing Floor did really well that Christmas. We would have made it. But are you willing to bet the farm on that? Because you are literally betting the company on it. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things is being a self-publisher that you actually do have control over these decisions. Um, in a way that you don't necessarily, if you're working with a much larger publisher who is super deadline driven, got to get it out by Christmas yeah. by any means necessary. Let's start cutting stuff. Let's, yeah. you know, get another team on it. I mean, I've seen all sorts of things happen um, in order to make these dates and deadlines. Oh, God. So. I, I mean, there was just a sudden thought that occurred to me there, which is about cash flow for uh, for developers. On the one hand, you want to ensure that your publisher understands your cash position. Because, I mean, you don't want to be in the stupid situation that the game's released and you run out of money while you're waiting for them to pay you. Right. That would be painful in the extreme. There is a, a very cynical point which says, can you, oh, if you're with the wrong publisher, the wrong type of publisher, you can't tell them that because they'll try and take advantage. Right. Um, I would like to think that there's not many like that left. Um, but Work, no, work closely. I mean, we'll actually ask this question to developers if we're if if we have reason to be concerned. Going, hang on a minute. How are you going to get to this point here? Because as far as we can tell, you know, yeah, um, you do need to. Again, it comes back to that really sad bit about the fact that you know, we, yes, we're making entertainment, but we have to make it add up. Otherwise, I mean, how frustrating would it be to 
you know, launch your first game and then not be able to make payroll while you're waiting for money. It's... Yeah. And I, would, I think you make a great point about the publisher ultimately, right? It's hopefully wanting to continue to partner with this developer. Yep. So they are super invested in making sure the developer sticks around to yep. either make a sequel or to make something new or yep. any of those things to, to add more content and things like that. So really, I think you're right that in today's publisher, I think people are looking at more as a favorable partnership, but certainly way back when it was more of an adversarial relationship. Yes, you know? it was. It was absolutely. I mean, the thing is that there was no concept of, um, you know, as there is today about how are we going to, you know, what's the long tail look like, you know, to use that now already old expression. Right. <laughs> um, you know, 20 years ago, games were fire and forget. Put them out. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe do a sale at some point, but that's mm -hmm. it. Now you're looking for, um, not in all cases, but in a, you know, in a lot of cases, multiplayer co-op games especially, you're looking for how do we continue to, to grow this game? How do we continue to grow the community? And that's going to take right. you know, investment from the developer, from the publisher, you know, to continue to, you know, to, to make money off the title. Absolutely. And then also the community piece of it is become more critical today as well, because there are so many different ways to get engaged with the community during development mm -hmm. so that they can see what's going on and, oh, well, do you like this or that? And the community gets really invested as well. And they help, you know, sustain the success of a studio as well if they Absolutely. like it. And then they go out and evangelize it and say, you've got to come play this game. And I think people are understanding how powerful that is. And so having like a strong publisher, a strong community, strong developers are really really great formula, you know, in the ideal world for success. Yep. So I think we've got one minute left. What other pearls of wisdom do we want to leave people with? Ah. Um, what kind of games is Tripwire looking for? <laughs> we're, people, there's an assumption that we're looking for, um, you know, the next Red Orchestra or the next Killing Floor or something. Uh, not entirely true. Keeping, you know, we've got 40 million odd players of our games who know those titles. We're looking for for games that have enough overlap that we can leverage that player base. Doesn't have to be the same. Um, you know, what sort of games, you know, some of the titles we're looking at at the moment are not, you know, um, first-person shooter, are not uh, multiplayer. And you're going, can we take that game to this audience? Can we, or more okay. to the point, can we bring this audience to that game? Right. You know, is it a strategy game that would interest them? Is it, you know, what, it, what is it that would, you know, because apart from the else, we're looking to expand our horizons, but, you know, what the developer should be looking for is us to leverage that player base. That's you know, great. If there's 40 million people who are listening and we can go, hey, guys, you want to look at this? You know, that's, that, that's strong marketing. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Again, thank you for the sponsorship as well. Always um, a pleasure. It was great chatting with you, and um, I guess we'll sign off now and have a great day. Okay. Thanks very much, Heather. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.